Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What did Engels have to say about the housing crisis? Cramped homes, extortionate costs, rip-off landlords, rising homelessness, projects to upgrade areas just used to force workers and poor people out. Meanwhile, posh new houses lie empty. It could be any major town or city in the 21st century, but it was all described by Frederick Engels back in the 19th century. Why does capitalism endlessly recreate this social crisis? Why didn't increasing home ownership solve the problem? What can we learn from Engels' arguments against anarchists and liberals about housing? And how can socialists start to fix it today? This episode of Socialism, part of a short series on Engels, looks at the fight for the right to a home, the housing question. So joining us again this episode, we have Niall Mulholland. Hello, Niall. Hello, James. You'll recognise Niall's voice and name from previous episodes. He is, of course, a member of the International Secretariat of the Committee for Workers International, as well as a member of the Socialist Party here in England and Wales. But Niall, you're also the chair of the Social Housing Action Campaign and a housing campaigner, particularly in the co-op sector, aren't you? I am, yes. Well, we're discussing today angles on the housing question... And this pamphlet, The Housing Question, to be fair, isn't one of Engels' better-known publications, is it? No, it isn't. Engels is best known for his collaboration with Marx in producing the Communist Manifesto, aiding him in Capital, and also in his earlier pamphlet on the conditions of the working class in England. He's probably best known for those, and also his writings on utopian socialism. But this is an important pamphlet, and it links in with all those other issues, actually. Mm-hmm. It takes up some, many of the same themes. So why is it then that we, on this series for the 200th anniversary of Engels' birth, are specifically looking at this pamphlet now? Well, I think the housing crisis, obviously conditions have changed since when he wrote this in 1872, but the housing crisis today is very, very serious and acute, and that's the case internationally. And, you know, you could look at it and say, well, was Engels' concerns were they born out or not, because look after the Second World War, there was massive expansion of public housing, of mm-hmm. council housing, and there was the economic boom, there's a lot of reforms for workers. It looked as if his pamphlet might have seemed dated by that point, and the housing crisis wasn't the same as in 1872. But those years are gone, and everybody now knows that we're in an acute housing crisis that particularly hits young people, working-class young people, the hardest. So... As you've mentioned, this pamphlet, The Housing Question, this was published in 1872. Can you tell us how it came about? Well, originally the pamphlet was Engels' response to articles that had been in a paper called The People's State, which is the newspaper of the German Social Democratic Workers' Party, which is the main Social Democratic Party at that stage. At that time, social democracy meant something different than today. They did represent real workers' parties that would really fight for working-class people and bring in reforms. And Engels polemicised against some of the articles in that newspaper on the housing issue, particularly against a man called Mühlberger, I hope I pronounced it correctly, (laughs) who is a follower of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who is known as the father of anarchism. Mm -hmm. And also he takes up the ideas of basically a sort of liberal bourgeois theorist called Emile Sachs on their opinions or views on housing. And... Engels, in that debate, of course, was also drawn on the fact that he had, in the conditions of the working class in England, looked at the general conditions of working class people, particularly in Manchester when he lived there, when he moved there to work at the mill that his father partly owned. 
and he looked at the conditions, the terrible conditions that workers lived in, in working class areas of Manchester at that time. So I think this pamphlet is very relevant today in a time of COVID crisis, Mm -hmm. of housing crisis and general economic crisis of capitalism. And although, as I said earlier, things have changed, of course, with housing, it's amazing how strikingly relevant this pamphlet is today. And Engels also wrote a German preface in 1887 to the pamphlet when he updated it, when he discussed more about industrialisation and urbanisation that had taken place since he first wrote the pamphlet. And the general background to the pamphlet is that it was mainly written discussing the situation in Germany. Okay. And Germany, of course, had gone through quite a fast period of industrialisation, which saw the rural peasants pushed off the land and forced into the cities for work. And there was a housing crisis because the housing stock that had been there was torn down in order to accommodate the new railways, the larger streets that were necessary for developing capitalism at that point for transporting raw materials and commodities and other forms of capital for industrialisation. And that meant that there was less housing. And it also meant that industrial growth drove up land values and with them rents. So similar to today, there was an acute housing crisis. People couldn't get the housing and they couldn't afford the housing. Mm. So you mentioned that this was Engels polemicising against Proudhon and Sachs. What were his differences with those thinkers on solving the housing question? Like I said, it raised a lot of points in this pamphlet. It shed light on distinctions between the tenant and landlord and the worker-capitalist relationship, which I'll come on to. It shed light on the question of the nature of the capitalist state and the distinction between even things like interest, rent and profit, but also the role of the working class in changing society. And Engels' critique of Proudhon, or the Proudhonist arguments that are made in the pamphlet, he was criticising the Proudhonist argument of there was some sort of moral appeal that could be made to change society, Mm. that there was such a thing as Proudhon called eternal justice. (laughs) And he proposed that to solve the the housing question, the key way to do that was for every worker to own their own house. And he said that this could be done essentially through an annual fair payment to the landlord for the actual cost of the house, and then eventually it become the ownership of those workers. So like higher purchase, but in housing? Yeah, that's right, a form of that. Proudhon also, of course, like a lot of anarchists at that time, part back to the idea of a pre-industrialisation and he would look at the rural areas in Germany and Mm. say, well, workers there, they were craft workers and they had their own small house, their own land. That's all been got rid of because of industrialisation. So it was a sort of regressive thing. He was looking back towards that period. Of course, the point that Engels made is that, of course, there's misery in the towns and cities, which comes along with capitalist industrialisation. But unless you have capitalist development, you don't have the development of the working class Mm -hmm. or the proletariat. And that's the basis for socialism, Mm -hmm. to change society at that level. This was a continuing argument between the anarchists and the Marxists during this period. Sachs, who came from a liberal bourgeois point of view, but was like a reformist of capitalism, Mm -hmm. his argument was based on the idea that capitalism could be reformed. And he proposed that each worker should own their own house. And by doing so, they themselves would become the capitalists. So <laughs> if everybody's a capitalist, <laughs> there's no problem. Well, and of course, Thatcher's line wasn't it in the 1980s. Exactly. When she came to power in 1879, one of her big so-called reforms was to sell off council housing. Mm. Of course, it was sold off to council tenants at sometimes bargain basement prices. But as we now know, within a matter of a decade's the mass of council housing is not in the hands of the children of those people in the late 70s and 1980s who bought their own houses. Mm. It's in the hands of private landlords mm-hmm. and they're run down conditions in many of these former council homes and they're rented out to people on a private basis at extortionate rates. Mm-hmm. And the children of the children or the people of the 70s and 80s who bought the houses 
can't get on the ladder anymore to buy houses. Mm. So from a social point of view, it's been an absolute disaster. And, you know, even the Tories accept today that a minimum of 100,000 houses need to be built in Britain alone every year just to begin to meet the housing crisis. And that's not being done by big business. And Sachs, he went further. He called on factory owners to give workers land and the resources necessary to build their own dwellings. Mm-hmm. He said that he acknowledged that the housing crisis was so bad in the cities it would be unfeasible to get this all done in the cities. And therefore, he suggested that the workers should move to the countryside or the outskirts of cities. And therefore, as opposed to Proudhon, he saw cities as the way forward. Right. That they were the motor force of change. And Engels answered that as well. And Engels said, but on the basis of capitalism, cities are massively overcrowded. They're squalor. There tends to be a high cost of living and a housing crisis, a high cost of commuting or travelling within the city. So again, for Engels, the answer was not the countryside of the past versus the city of today. Mm. The answer was change society fundamentally. And that distinction between the countryside and the cities, have cities that are actually livable, that aren't big monstrous metropolises under capitalism, mm. but where people can have a nice home, they can be greenery, they can be space, and at the same time people can live in the countryside without being excluded, without being isolated, that there's a proper communications and there's proper transport and developed services. And that will not happen under capitalism. We see all the time the differentiations in the countryside and the cities and so on. So we talk about both those ideas. And again, that's very relevant to today mm. and the types of societies that we look at. And I think Ruth Engels, his main argument against their ideas was that they both had a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism okay. and housing. Because the measures which they put forward, those sound like, you know, good stopgaps at mm. least. Why yeah. is it that those didn't last when they were attempted? Why wouldn't they last under capitalism? Mm. Engels' main argument was that they both assume that the exploitation, which is intrinsic to capitalism, they assume that it can be solved without overthrowing that system, Mm. that it can be solved with just having individual ownership, whilst Engels argued we need collective ownership, and that includes housing. I mean, having said that, no Marxists today are arguing that working-class people who mortgage their own homes should be kicked out of their homes, and those homes taken over. (laughs) We're not not arguing that. The very big homes and the big hotels, that's different. But working-class... Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, for a start. Yeah. And all the empty properties, and there's lots of them. Mm. But we're not saying that about workers who have scrimped and saved to mortgage their homes. But, of course, their children aren't able to do the same thing. Mm. So there is a collective problem that needs to be resolved collectively. And Engels also made the you know accusation against their arguments that what they were basically arguing in two different ways. They were arguing that by solving the housing crisis as they saw it, that would then change social relations and you could have a better society. Mm. Proudhon thinking you could get rid of capitalism, in effect and Sachs thinking you could have a nice, managed, reformed capitalism. And Engels made the point that it's the reverse. If you want to fundamentally change the housing crisis, you need to change the social relations in society. Mm. You need to overthrow this system. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, he didn't think there could be housing reforms. Mm. And, of course, it went further than he ever would have foreseen with municipal housing, with council housing. And that's because of developments in the 20th century of revolution and counter-revolution after the Bolshevik Revolution, the threat that the ruling class felt under, they had to make these concessions, mm. the growth of the labour movements, labour parties coming to power in Britain when they're more on the left, mm. after the Second World War and pushing the issue of council housing. Engels could have sketched that, but he couldn't have seen that in detail. But I think what he said runs correct, particularly today whenever we don't have those mass organisations of working class struggle that are putting the ruling class under pressure. And we certainly don't see it at Keir Starmer's Labour Party. <laughs> I mean, Jeremy Corbyn had quite a good housing policy. He called for 100,000 new council homes to be built every year if he came to power. And well, last council and social homes. Council and social, that's true. There is a qualification. And that still stands, presumably, in the manifesto, but it means nothing. The Starmer leadership are not going to carry that policy through. Mm. 
Okay, so what does Engels mean then when he says that capitalism solves, as he put it, the housing question in the same way that it solves, in inverted commas, the other problems it causes, i.e., and this is a quote, in such a way that the solution continually reproduces the question anew? Because this is also getting at the mistakes of Proudhon in particular, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Engels, in that part of the pamphlet, he goes into some depth into the situation that developed, particularly in Paris and Germany and some of the British cities with the housing clearances and new housing that was built mainly in the mid-19th century. And one of the cases he talks about is the famous houseman changes in Paris were under Louis Bonaparte. Houseman was appointed as the head of the Paris region in 1853. So, I this guy's name was Houseman, was it? Yeah. That's just an appropriate name, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, to redesign the city. Okay. And he became known. I mean, we go to Paris today, it looks beautiful. All the big, long the boulevards, the yeah. lovely buildings. For working people at the time, living in the... And there would have been slums. Yeah. But for them living at the time... And actually, by the way, on the outskirts of Paris, there still are slums. Exactly. <laughs> and at that time, the people lived in slums, mainly in central Paris... But he's known in history by working people in France as the butcher of Paris Mm. because it was a brutal clearance that took place of people. They were forced out of their homes. Paris was basically hacked up and tore up wholesale Mm. and they just tore through the housing to create these wide streets and luxury apartments. And workers were sent packing to the suburbs, as you said. They're still there, you know, and the poverty conditions are very bad. And a similar process did happen in other cities across Europe particularly places like Manchester. Not so much London. Manchester, it had the Industrial Revolution a bit more from scratch compared to London, Mm -hmm. which is a much older capital, and therefore it wasn't the same dramatic effect. But there still were big parts of what we would see as central London today Mm. where people had lived in terrible conditions very often, but they were just forced out by these changes without any discussion. And it went into the last century as well. Robert Moses is quite infamous in New York for his redevelopment of the city in the mid-20th century, when again, whole neighbourhoods were just torn apart and destroyed to make way for new highways and expressways. So that was the process that took place. And Engels, if you read this pamphlet, it's interesting the language he uses. He refers to the bourgeoisie trend to justify this by using terms like it was for public health and it was to beautify the town. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very similar to gentrification. Yeah. And it's very similar to regeneration. Yes, this, and is, so this, on. Is the, this is the term used by a lot of Labour councils today to boot out working class communities. Exactly. The regeneration of big council estates has taken place at the moment mm. where there's big protests against it by the tenants. They may want their blocks to be improved, sure. but turn them down. They've been there maybe for decades, turn them down and not been given a guarantee they'll have housing afterwards. Why would people want that? Again, there's no proper consultation. There's no democratic decision making in this process. And... Engels also made the point that this process doesn't solve the housing question. It just pushes us somewhere else. So I'll just give a quote from him, which I think is good. In the pamphlet, he says, whenever the houseman and so on took their measures, he says, the result is everywhere the same. The scandalous alleys and lanes disappear to the accompaniment of lavish self-praise from the bourgeoisie on account of this tremendous success. But they appear again immediately somewhere else and often in the immediate neighbourhood. And I think all of us who live in London or big cities see this all the time. Mm. There'll be some gentrification, Mm so-called, in certain areas that push out the working class communities and create new problems. I mean, we know there's a strike taking place at the moment in Mm Newham at Little Lilford School. In East London. In East London. And one of the reasons the teachers on strike would say that the problem has been caused is because there's been gentrification around Stratford, Mm -hmm. which is part of Newham. And local families have been pushed out of that area. And more of them are now living around the area where the little Ilford school is. Mm -hmm. The numbers have massively increased that need to go to schools. Mm -hmm. 
rather than building new schools, a small number of the board of governors in that school, with the backing of the council at the moment, mm-hmm. want to just add a few buildings onto that school. Which is already enormous. Which is already enormous, not so much little Ilford at all. No. <laughs> they want to add more buildings onto it and there'll be massive overcrowding and not enough teacher staff and so on. So that's an indirect effect of gentrification. Yeah, and by the way, if you read Newham Council's report on school places, mm. which is a key document in this strike that you've mentioned, you look at their executive summary of that report, you look at that report... And it explains away this rise in student numbers, these, you know, 300 students are trying to cram into this school now, additional students, by saying, oh, yes, birth rates have gone up and this has led to more children. Wow! What incredible insight! <laughs> you know, why are they all around Little Orford School? Because they can't yeah. afford to live in the rest of the borough because you throw up loads of luxury flats, often with tent cities underneath them, mm-hmm. rather than representing the working class of New York. Mm-hmm. And I could give another example, another local Newham example, near where I live. The West Ham Football Club grounds, they move from the Boleyn grounds to the big new showpiece used during the Olympics in 2012 in Stratford. And that area where the old grounds were has been turned into housing. It's not genuinely affordable. Mm. It probably is housing people who work in the city of London. The spillover from there. And along with that is the attempt to so-called gentrify the main street that it runs along Green Street. Mm-hmm. And it means at the moment that the market traders in Queen's Market feel under a threat and feel that the so-called gentrification could lead to their number of pitches being cut down. And that will have a knock-on effect on local trade and local businesses and so on. And we've seen the same process throughout London. Yeah. And we've seen it internationally. Yeah. And Ingalls was pointing this out over 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. And therefore... You know, Engels made the point that capitalism can't solve the housing question or address poor living conditions. He said the problems are just nearly shifted elsewhere, and that's how he put it. And I think, you know, why does capital, why does big business, why does the money follow certain areas as far as housing is concerned? And Engels again explained this, saying that, I'll quote him, the same economic necessity which produced them in the first place produces them in the next place also, meaning where profit goes mm-hmm. as far as housing is concerned. And he talked about the overdevelopment of cities. So capital flows to wherever the rate of profit is at the highest. Mm-hmm. And when capital becomes so concentrated in some areas or certain areas of cities, it then flees and goes elsewhere. And actually, if you look at it, just before COVID hit, and it's sort of dis- disjointed everything, but before COVID hit, there had been a move away from London to a degree up to the Midlands and the northern cities and building sprees taking place there. Mm. Of course, not housing local people either, any more than they did in London. And that process was taking place. And it's a cyclical thing. It tends to be, you know, investment brings development, which, because it's capitalism, brings overdevelopment, which then brings decline. And then at some point, then to come back again mm. for so-called revitalization of the local economies. And as this would be the same case internationally. There's nothing rational. It's all about the buck, where the money can be made. And housing has become a quite safe asset for big business over mm. the last 20 years. It's limited what they can get on other spheres. This has been where they can make a lot of money. Even if it means, for example, oligarchs buying properties in London, building big tower blocks, they're very good assets to have. They don't mm. really care if anybody's housed in them or not. No, and, and a lot of them are just empty, aren't just they? Just empty. These massive tower blocks. And then you've got literally got homeless people at the bottom of yeah. them. It's just some of the obscenity of capitalism. And I think also, you know, with housing in particular, it's very often tied in with the boom and bust cycle of capitalism. We saw it in 2007 and 2008. If you remember, the whole crash that took place at the time was triggered off by the housing boom collapsing in America mm. with the subprime mortgages, where basically the banks had lent people who could not afford it 
They'd given them mortgages to buy houses because they're so hiked up the price of the houses. is way beyond their wages, but it was a good return at that period for the banks. And then eventually, of course, that reached a peak and the bubble burst because people couldn't keep paying back at these rates. That whole subprime mortgage part of the American economy collapsed. Mm. It then had a knock-on effect on the big banks. We saw some of the big banks, Lehman's collapse as well during that. And then it caused the whole economic crisis on a world scale. And it began through housing. Mm. And that tends to be a common feature with housing. So it's also not just important from the point of view of where people can live. It tends to be a key factor of the capitalist economy. Mm. So what then is Engel's solution to the housing crisis? You talked about collective ownership. We perhaps would talk about collective action. He talks about both of those in this pamphlet. What does he mean? Well, to quote Engels again, he said, the solution lies in the abolition of the capitalist mode of production and the appropriation of all the means of life and labour by the working class itself. In other words, he's saying that the response shouldn't be turning individual workers one by one into individual owners of homes. Mm -hmm. Instead, he said that we have to take a general position. We need to be collective owners of our economy, Mm -hmm. and that includes homes. Because otherwise, presumably, the little individual owners just get sucked up by the big capitalists, as you see in shops and in all other spheres, right? That's right. And he also made the point that home ownership also was a burden for people. Mm. Because, you know, once you've mortgaged somewhere, you have to pay this off over years. It makes it very difficult to move anywhere. Mm. You're sort of stuck to the job you have. Bosses use that as an excuse to try and repress wages. Mm. And also, of course, it's like a burden as well that you have. And today it's even worse in a way because people might have thought in the past, well, it's like a pension for me and I can also pass it on to my children. Mm. Well, if you end up with very bad health and you have to go into a home and it has to be paid for, (laughs) you can lose your home. Mm. And as we know, you might have one child. If you have more than that, that's not going to work out so well. Mm. And part of the sale of a house today is not going to buy your child another house. So that whole sort of argument that Thatcher and Reagan and others lent on and did win over a section of the middle class on that basis. And even some of the working class. And even some of the working class. That's been just taken from underneath their feet. Mm. And I think if you look at the surveys today in the polls, the vast majority of people support the big extension of public housing Mm. or council housing, as we call it in Britain. Mm -hmm. And they see the need for people to be housed and they don't have confidence in the big developers doing it, who will just follow the money. They don't build for people's needs, they build for profit. Mm -hmm. And the governments aren't doing it either with one so-called initiative after another. It's always throwing money at big business and the big developers and, in effect, subsidising them. And, as I said, you know, millions of people today still do own their own homes, and we're not saying they should lose those homes or anything like that. We'd actually call for state measures to protect those people Mm. because a lot will be losing their jobs because of COVID and the lockdown. But we'd also tie that to the nationalisation of the big banks. Mm. Why should private banks decide mortgage rates and if people get turfed out or not from their homes? We would say the big banks should be brought under democratic workers' control and management and that should be tied into a socialist economy as a whole. And in that way, there can be a rational plan of housing and housing need. I mean, as Engels makes the point repeatedly in this pamphlet, he points out that under capitalism, housing is a commodity. It's not a right as Mm. far as capitalists are concerned. It's not a right as far as the ruling class are concerned. It only becomes a right, he says, in the true meaning under a socialist society, whenever housing is there for people's needs. Mm. I mean, he also knocked in the head the argument that Proudhon put forward, this crude argument that Proudhon said, well, really, if you look at a tenant and a landlord, they have the same sort of relationship as a worker and the boss. And if you can change that relationship, you've turned society on its head and you've liberated the masses. And of course, Engels said, well, that's just nonsense. He said housing is an ill in society, but it's a secondary ill compared to the exploitation of the working class. As he pointed out, anybody, rich, poor, middle class, they can all be ripped off by a landlord. Mm. 
But he said it's the working class when they're a worker and their relationship to the boss that is special to capitalism, mm. where he talked about their labour, the value of their labour, a section of it is stolen by the bosses who use it for their profits. And that is different than the relationship between a landlord and the tenant. And this sort of confused idea that Proudhon put forward and other anarchists meant that their understanding of the basic nature of capitalism was wrong. Mm. It wasn't as Marx and Engels had described, you know, during their lifetime. So they didn't understand what the actual main motor force of the massive expansion of productive capacity which capitalism afforded compared to, say, feudalism. They didn't really understand where that came from. No. But also this idea that, in effect, turning tenants into their own landlords... Well, what's the corollary of that in the productive field? That's turning workers into their own bosses. So (laughs) presumably that's just a field full of tiny businesses, micro-businesses. But surely ultimately, one of those becomes bigger than the rest and you just start the whole process over again. Yeah, that's right. And in a way, as we know, the anarchism sort of it came out of some of the utopian socialist ideas that existed. Mm. But Engels makes the point in his pamphlet, he said, people like Robert Owen, who was one of the pioneers of the cooperative movement in Britain and internationally, he said he still had a better understanding than people like Proudhon Mm. of what was taking place. He said that at least Owen tried to have these communal villages or towns, model towns and villages, because he understood it couldn't just be a question of housing. It also had to be the workplace Mm. and it had to be, you know, society overall. The problem was this is at a period when Owen was trying to carry these experiments out was before really the big development of the modern working class Mm. and capitalism was still in its relative infancy. So he is not going to succeed in his islands of cooperation in the midst of developing capitalism, but the intentions were correct and he wanted some sort of communistic society. Proudhon, in a way, as Engels puts it in this pamphlet, despite whatever his intentions were, he wants to turn the clock back. He wants to turn the clock back to small artisan society. Like you say, everybody's like their own little boss. Mm. Everybody owns their little house. And in that way, you get rid of the problem today of big capital and the working class. But what he's trying to do is turn the clock back to a sort of pre-modern capitalist society. And obviously that can't be done. And it's been seen it can't be done. Yeah. And we've had 150 years since of capitalism with all its crises and catastrophes. But also, of course, with the development of technique and science and so on. And we build on that. The working class, which is now much greater than it was in the time of Engels, in absolute numbers, and much more educated, mm. it is in a much better position to take hold of the levers of industry and science and so on and production and to transform society. Great. So this was Engels writing about a specific situation in Germany in the 19th century, but the outlines of it look remarkably similar to certainly England and Wales today, but the world today, really. What are we saying then about the situation in England and Wales now and what is the Socialist Party saying needs to happen in England and Wales now to start to solve the housing crisis? Yeah, well, the situation today is very bad. There's a deep housing crisis and increasing big parts of the population are forced to rent in the private sector. There's no chance of owning their own houses. So just to give you some of the figures, rents are up 3.4% nationally this year in the UK. And over the last decade, there's been a 77% rise in London and a 27% rise outside of London in the last decade. That's just in the last 10 years? In the last 10 years. And it's estimated that the average benefit income of a family with children is £2,900 less than it was in 2011. So people have massive rent increases and less money. TUC estimates that workers' wages have stagnated and fallen around 1% since 2010. I think that's an underestimation. Mm -hmm. And also now with the new tsunami of attacks that the Chancellor made yesterday Mm -hmm. on public sector wages. Another wage freeze for public sector workers in Britain. Another wage freeze, another form of austerity. It's Mm -hmm. going to have a huge effect. 
And then, of course, we've got all the other factors that make housing a crisis. So, for example, because of cuts in legal aid, there's now 40% less housing cases funded by legal aid since 2010. Mm. So a lot of people find themselves homeless because they can't get any legal help mm. and because they can't pay the rent. And 52% of local authorities have no legal aid provision at all. So there's not even provision there for people to fight against the landlords who are trying to kick them out. Mm. I mean, Engels, in that pamphlet, back in 1872, he makes the point that even then, the vast majority of people who are homeless in the big cities could have been housed by taking over the big properties of the rich, but also loads of empty properties that existed in the cities. Mm-hmm. And we would argue the same here. For example, you know, if you may remember, this first lockdown, the government was under enormous pressure to get homeless people off the streets. Mm. And they did. They housed 14,600 people. Now, remember, we were told for decades this was impossible. Yeah. There wasn't room for these people. Now, of course, a lot of them would have been put into temporary accommodation in hotels and so on. Sure. Well, we would say if there's the room in those places for people then that should be just taken by the state and used, or else proper homes should be built. So uh, I just thought you could just solve homelessness by giving people homes? Well, you could in a way. You could certainly solve the homelessness of people on the streets, that type of homelessness, and for a lot of people who sofa surf, as they say, or a lot of families who are stuck on temporary accommodation and B&B conditions with young children, all that could be solved very quickly. I mean, just to give an example... It's estimated that there are just under 700,000 vacant homes in the UK and 225,000 of them have been empty for six months. That's a 2.2% rise from the year before. So it's actually increasing the number of empty properties. Yet at the same time, we see that the number of people on the streets and who are homeless has also gone up. I mean, we'd make the point that councils should be fighting this, mm-hmm. you know, particularly Labour councillors if they want to claim to act on behalf of working people. I mean, look what Militant did in Liverpool in the 1980s. This is the forerunner of the Socialist Party, which led a Labour council in Liverpool. That's right, in the 1980s. And they defied the Tory government and the Thatcher government's rate capping at that time. Mm -hmm. They fought for more resources and they won big concessions because they mobilised working people for Mm. demonstrations of up to 50,000. Workers in the council organised and prepared to take action for these demands. And it meant that they built 5,400 council homes That would be unthinkable today, Mm. any council doing that across the whole of the country. And yet they can. And yet they can, if the intention was there. Even in the early 1950s, 300,000 council homes were built by a Tory government, by the Macmillan government. And that was meant to be a time that Britain was bankrupt after Mm. the Second World War. So if the intention is there, it can be done. I mean, that Tory government wasn't any more altruistic (laughs) than the Tory government today, but they are under huge social pressure because the left had become emboldened after the Second World War. People returned from the fighting and wanted a fundamental change in society. So the ruling class were forced to give concessions at that time. To avoid that fundamental change. To avoid that, exactly. And I think the main lesson of that, if you like, is that we have to fight today for everything. We need to organise and fight back. SHAC, which is the Social Housing Action Campaign, Socialist Party members involved in it and in other housing campaigns, we put forward the demand for mass building of council homes mm-hmm. across Britain. We say that empty properties on the sort of scale I've mentioned, the figures given, can be taken over immediately and that can get homeless people off the street into safe conditions mm-hmm. and living in decent conditions as well. And that is the only way to fundamentally change this. But it's not going to happen, obviously, relying on Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Mm. And the Tories have no intention whatsoever of moving in that direction. So therefore, it does take struggle. And there are some good campaigns at the moment on a local level. For example, there's the London Renters Union are doing mm-hmm. good work and are fighting against evictions. There's a powerful history of rent strikes and tenants organisations in the UK who have fought for better conditions. 
We need to rebuild a lot of them because of the breakup of council housing and because of the character of housing associations, which have become like big business and are very hostile in many cases to local tenants organising themselves. We need to get back to that where tenants organise themselves and their organisations and Shack and others are attempting to help in this process. I also think direct action is needed at times. Mm-hmm. Again, to go back to Newham, we saw recently where a disused community centre was taken over by homeless people last summer. It's called Shed 22 and they made it livable as far as they could. And disgracefully, absolutely shamefully, the council, which had let this lay idle for years and years, then slapped on them an eviction order and declared that they were going to demolish the building and they needed to get rid of them. Mm. I mean, if they are going to demolish the building, for what? Are they going to build another community centre? It's Mm -hmm. unlikely. Are they going to build really affordable housing for local people? I think that's extremely unlikely as well. And this is 100% run Labour Council. Mm. That's what we're up against in a way. But I think we've got to look at history where workers, in particular in the 20s and 30s and 40s, organised themselves. Tenants associations became very strong by the 60s and 70s. And policies were put in that give tenants much more protection against landlords, private landlords, where tenants associations could have a big impact on councils and councillors had to really listen to what they were saying and so on. We can rebuild those sorts of organisations, but it does need to be allied towards a political solution, as Engels said, and where Engels very clearly said again and again, he says it in the pamphlet because he's arguing on fundamentals here mm-hmm. against Proudhon and Sachs. He says we need to change the mode of production away from capitalism to a democratic socialist society where resources are shared out on a basis of need Mm -hmm. and to rely on reforming capitalism or trying to return to some idealistic past that the anarchists thought existed and could be, you know, recalibrated in a new society. He said that was going nowhere. You had to fundamentally change society. Mm -hmm. And of course, as part of that struggle to fundamentally change society, as we always say, Marxists like ourselves will fight for every possible gain today. We will do everything to fight on behalf of the working class and with the working class for example, like the Shed 22, to stop evictions that are taking place mm. and also to fight for homes where they can be gained in the immediate term. But overall, if we're going to build hundreds of thousands of new homes, which is what's needed, mm. then you need a socialist vehicle to fight for that. And that means creating a new mass party of the working class in most countries. Well, as always, listeners, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us. And if you agree, join the socialists. Thank you very much, Niall. Thank you, James. (laughs) Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Niall Mulholland speaking to James Ivins, and I'm Josh Asker. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes on your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions of the Socialist Party? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, Contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity. Solidarity.